Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What time is that? That's the second time it's gone off. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen Murph and Ken all here in studio. Hey, How you doing? How you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. A bad, bad day for Leinster Rugby though at the RDS yesterday. Summed up by a conversation I overheard towards the end of the game. Oh yeah? About five minutes ago, the crowd <laughs> streaming out in their thousands. Not exactly, not everybody's sticking by their boys in blue there for the last five minutes. So yeah. A little bit... Just trying to salvage what they can of their Sunday. Little, yeah, well, it was only 10 to 3, quarter to 3 at this stage. So I'm going to argue there's plenty of Sunday left. But listen, that's that's neither here nor there for now. About five minutes ago, seven, I had a look, 75 minutes, a young boy sitting behind me, Murph, asked his father, but dad, the game isn't over yet. Why are they leaving? His father says, it's over, son. We came, I like how he phrased it, we came second today, but we'll beat them next time. Not yeah, sure how convinced the kids are. <laughs> Well, that was nice, wasn't it? I mean, that's some good parenting. That is, no, yeah. And, uh, and I like that little kid, but I've got to say, my low point of the day involved a rather more precocious child and your favourite sporting mascot, Murph, figures in this narrative. What? Who? Leo the Lion? Leo the Lion. Yeah, well, he is my favourite sports mascot. There's no doubt about Young that. Young lad, seven or eight years of age, I'd say. Eight max. Um, a couple of rows back in, the, in one of the stands. Gets Leo's attention, as kids do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all, that's all good. Leo says, okay, I'll go in for the traditional high five here. And I've made a career out of this, mm-hmm. out of high-fiving kids. I'm good with kids. That's, that's kind of why I have this job. The, the child just looks at him with a mix of confusion and a touch of contempt, I thought. I said, why would I want to high-five you? I mean, you're, you're a mascot, you know? Kid walks a couple of steps forward, hops over the hoarding, demands Leo stay where he is, whips out a mobile phone, mm-hmm. turns around in front of him and takes a selfie to two of them. So? Uh, well, I just think, this. I assumed at this point that the kid was going to walk back hand that mobile phone back to his mum. Yeah. that? No, no, back in the pocket, Ken. Yeah. I mean, that's what age? His, that's his mobile that's phone. That's his mobile phone. He's eight years old. Yeah. And he's got a, obviously a smartphone. Like, he's not taking a, uh, you know, a photograph on one of those. Well, but what's the problem with that? 
I just think and there has to be an age. There has to be a minimum age at which it's right to buy your kid a, a phone. I mean, I, I know it's good to know where they are and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, when they're... That's often the <laughs> thing people age. are thinking. Right, rather than the real reason, which is often they keep bugging me for a phone, so... I'll just... Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know. Where do you draw the line? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to say like like 12. Yeah. Is that... Is that, would that, is that in line with, uh, with common thinking? I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it's, it's like... Uh, I mean, what other technological innovations of recent times would you, would you deny children the use, the of? use of? Oh, I know they can... Yeah. iPads. They're on iPads from the time they're about six months. They're proficient. Most kids, I find, are proficient. Depending on the laziness of the parents, uh, they're uh, they could be they're quite they could be quite handy on that iPad pretty quickly. I'll tell you what that kid kid does need though, Ken. Mm-hmm. He needs to start reading some books. And what better place to start than the second Captain Sports Annual Volume One? Yes, that's right. Our book is going to be published. There is some bad language, but uh, listen, he's fine. He's I mean, fine with that. He's you on the internet there. That yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Our book's going to be published later this week. Dying to hear relationship advice from Ross Commons, greatest ever goalkeeper Shane Curran. Yes, yes. Ever wondered what comedy superstar David O'Doherty is really like behind closed doors? <laughs> Ready for the truth behind Ken Early's Marseille years? Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. And we've also got some great long-term, long-form <laughs> journalism. Hopefully, long-term as well. I mean, long-term it can be there forever. Journalism. It is a book, after all, including a uh, brilliant exploration of the Conor McGregor phenomenon by Ken. Here, we're going to have a li- limited number of Thanks, copies. Uh, Thanks, Owen. Oh, it's absolutely superb. Brilliant. Uh, it's all printed and produced in Ireland. It will be available from Eason's and all good bookstores. It'll be published later on this week. Already available to pre-order online on secondcaptains.com. Fifteen euro ninety-nine is pretty I mean, good think, value. To think. That that's just you, a week's pocket money for that kid. Well, I mean, he's that's getting, a that, kid, that kid's money. getting 20, 20 quid a week minimum pocket money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's earning more than Simon is. Um, I think that, you know, there's, it, it's amazing really that we can give this to people. You know, that, that if you know someone who loves second captains, that you can be within three clicks of solving that, that thorniest of questions, what to get someone for Christmas. I mean, that, that is an amazing gift that we have bestowed onto you, the listener. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's up to you now to just fulfill your side of the bargain. Go through the, uh, the, the formalities. And there are very few formalities. And uh, within a number of weeks, it shall be yours. We're going to talk about the most dominant team in Irish sports today, Murph. Uh, we are, well, and we are indeed. The Cork Ladies Footballers. Uh, 10 All-Ireland uh, wins in 11 years means that I don't think there's a whole lot of an argument that you could put up uh, against them being the most dominant team in Irish sport. Uh, yeah, Mary White's a Cork-based journalist who has written a book called Relentless about uh, the story of the Cork ladies football team, which is actually pretty remarkable when you think about it because when Eamon Ryan, their manager, for all throughout their uh, era of success, took over, they'd never won even one Munster title. And since then, they've won uh, 10 All-Irelands in 11 years, nine national leagues and 10 Munster championships, which is extraordinary. Uh, th- that you would come from a base of having won nothing to turning it around within one year and just uh, lay waste to everyone you you play against for the next decade is uh, pretty extraordinary. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably been a while in coming, the telling of this uh, team, actually, the more you think about it. All right, we'll get on to that later. But Simon, Leinster 6, Wasps 33, what yeah. the hell happened? Uh, everything happened. Uh, off the field, on the field, mental preparation, physical preparation, tactics, uh, confidence. The fans were terrible. Team the announcer in the stadium was terrible. It was the worst day I could remember for Leinster. And it's up there with the worst days for any of the provinces. You know, 
Munster's massive defeat against Ospreys a few years ago. Um, I think Toulon put up 60 against Ulster last year. It's all-time lows in terms of provincial rugby. Oh, Jerry Thornley has popped into us. Jerry, can you bring anything positive at all to the table? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Not one positive. It's in the same. might come back from injury and they can only play better yeah. next week away to Bath. They cannot play any worse. Um, that's Lencer, obviously. And um, they are... They're, they're probably out as it is, but they certainly have to win away to bat to have any chance, and they'll have to play better. The Sable will come back. Um, I presume they'll make amendments to selections. It was a performance riddled with errors. I didn't think the selection was the best. Um, I think they'll rectify some of the selections hopefully this week. I'd, on a blustery day, you've lost your first choice fullback, and then you lose your second choice fullback in Easton Asaba, as well as Rob Carney. Why don't you play a test qualified fullback who's played many times at test level for South Africa at fullback on a blustery day rather than a makeshift out half stroke centre? I thought it was a tough ask in Ian Madigan. I thought it affected the whole back three. I thought it was a contributing factor to the first try, which seemed to completely deflate them. I don't understand why Marty Moore wasn't on the bench. I don't understand why Reese Ruddock wasn't on the bench. Um, in hindsight, they might have been better off going with Gary Ringrose, but you can understand why they went with Fergus McFadden there. And um, then you have all the unforced errors and the mistakes. You have Dave Carney knocking on a long-range penalty and Jack Conan just picking up the ball and even his teammates look shocked. Yeah. But there was just, there seemed a remarkable lack of urgency, lack of communication on the pitch. Even Johnny Sexton wasn't getting annoyed. It was just, a, it was a really, a coupled with the, the graveyard shift that is the Sunday brunch time kickoff, and that being their most winnable match and their must-win match of all six, it leaves them seriously in the back foot. It's very deflating for the whole organisation. And sometimes there's games that start really badly, like Ireland-Argentina. You're a couple of tries mm. down with a few minutes gone, and everybody's questioning themselves. But they started okay, relative to how badly they played in the rest of the game. The first 20 minutes weren't so bad. It was three off for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So there really is no explanation for it. No, there isn't. I, I, if, I've been thinking about it all day. and trying, What could there be an explanation? This is a new coaching regime. First game in a European Cup at home. Must-win game. How, how do you explain this? And I can only explain it in terms of a World Cup hangover, Simon. It's the only thing I can come up with. That as the bulk suppliers to Ireland's World Cup, and as it's such an intense August, September, October, three-month campaign, that, and it was then also, again, so deflating, so anticlimactic the way they went out, that Leinster are suffering the biggest collective World Cup hangover of any team in of the Irish provinces. Munster did not supply as many players, therefore are not, supply, not suffering as much of a hangover. Um, and ditto Ulster. Um, I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with. But, I mean, in terms of the psychology, say, say we talk about Madigan and Dave Kearney. Dave Kearney maybe typifies this, where he had loads of confidence at the start of the World Cup, mm. um, and then it comes to the Argentina game, and he is one of the people certainly at fault for the first try against Argentina, and then he has a bad game for the rest of that game, and now he's completely bereft of confidence. Ian Madigan didn't have a terrible game against Argentina, but did miss that penalty, had a few errors, was one of the people who berated himself, looked absolutely sure on confidence in that game as well. So maybe you are onto something there in terms of, in terms of the mentality coming out of the World Cup, more, mentality. Than the, more than the physical side. Look, a soccer World Cup comes at the end of the season. If the Southern Hemisphere, the World Cup comes at the end of the season, you deal with success or failure in your two or three month break that follows your six-week break, the fuzz. that's the proper order of things. World Cup should be at the end of the season. It can never be the end of a rugby season. For somebody, it's always going to have to be in the middle or the start of the season. The adjustment mentally of coming back into your province and playing two weeks after the World Cup is over 
uh, and, and relaunching a new European campaign must be a huge ask, particularly if there's a huge sense of disappointment, particularly if there's form issues, confidence issues that you've identified. And I would add to that people like Owen Redden and Sean Cronin, who played little or no rugby for the last two months. Um, Cronin mystifyingly dropped from the Irish bench. Um, Redden hardly getting a look in because Murray is such an established number nine. They come back here, they're, they've actually played too little rugby. And their confidence wouldn't be great either. So, and again, there would be a mental hangover for them as well, I would argue. I'm just worried about giving too easy an out to what was just a despicably bad performance. To, to, get, to pin it down to one thing, because there's so many different knock-on effects to this. And there were so many aspects of the day from Leinster yeah, as a province. Right. that yeah. were, We talk about the crowd, we talk <clears throat> about the performance... Um, the, the lack, lack of, of effect of ticket sales yeah. in the future. Well, yeah. well, there was, I mean, well, there was the acceptance. Sorry to cut across, Jerry, but you mentioned that Johnny Sexton wasn't getting angry. Mm. He almost, I don't want to say he seemed to accept it because that sounds like he was happy to lose. That's not the case, but there wasn't quite the same urgency about his game. Same, the supporters were watching on in silence. There mm. was no great anger. There was just this. No, could you imagine if Matt O'Connor stood in the coach? There would have been anger then. There might well have been. Maybe there that's it, been. that people are in a situation now where, well, well we can't we, give we, out about the coach. No, we, this, this is what we wanted. One of us, yeah. yeah. This is what we wanted, so we can't give out about the coach. Um, something that Brian O'Driscoll identified in comedy as well was the, the amount of 50-50 balls on the deck or whatever that Wasps won. There was just a greater urgency in Wasps' performance than there was. Now, by you compare and contrast with Wasps, they've relatively few at the World Cup. They've been together they all season long as a club side. They were a, a lot more cohesive, particularly in defence. I thought their defence was way more cohesive and better work rate and understanding and no... No breaks in the chain, whereas our, the Leinster defence at times, you know, there was dog legs, there was, there was just a disorganisation. There seemed to be lack of communication as well. It seemed to be a very, they seemed like church mice out there, <laughs> players and, and supporters alike. It was just, at times you could almost hear a pin drop. It was Which really is bizarre trouble. with Sexton on the pitch. Yes, it was. Exactly. It. And the thing is, this has been going on a couple of years now. Leinster, if you look at the graph, the performance are getting worse and worse, and this is maybe their worst ever. So you, there's no link there's no coach you can say there's no player you can say it's definitely pinned on there's no strategy it's pinned on it's just a, a slide for two and a half seasons now yeah it seems that way and then you know there's always a danger in sport though that you can jump to conclusions based on one game far too quickly and you know i can't that's believe exactly the opposite of what I, uh, i'm saying i know i know I, yeah. that i know that but it, yeah true but i know what i'm saying simon you never know what might happen in a week's time, how much this might galvanise them, cajole them. It's so often the case that teams play so badly and a week later they turn around out of pride, sheer pride demands they do. Now they must, they will surely be really angry with themselves all week now and want to rectify. If there isn't, what would be really worrying, Simon, if there is no response against Bath next Saturday in the wreck that, and another limp defeat, then that would be sign of a really deep malaise already setting in and that would be their season Certainly the European season over already. Well, Sean O'Brien, Mike McCarthy and Rickard Strauss were all taken off with yeah, concussions. Doesn't help. So they're all going to have to go through those protocols. And, and look, you, know, you, you can't tell exactly how serious these concussions are individually without knowing the ins and outs of it. But certainly didn't look good for one or two of those guys. He's in a say, well, Rob Carney, Luke Fitzgerald, Ben Teo, Reese Rudick were all out at the weekend. Yeah, big loss, big loss, and big loss. Is, and it's a six-day turnaround, which yeah. I don't know if that is as big a deal. Ben Teo particularly is yeah. a, such a reference of go for Look, Leinster's game is all about gain line. And, and Wasp identified that and stopped them on the gain line. And when Sean O'Brien went off, compounding the absence of Ben Teo and so, so many of these go-to players you identified, real carriers... 
that you know they need them back and they're a huge reference point for their game. I think Nasebo will come back. If Tew comes in, that would be a huge boost. You wouldn't be too optimistic about Luke Fitzgerald, given his history of injury reports in the past and that he's now missed two games with supposedly a bang in the shoulder. You know, it's, you just wouldn't by nature be optimistic about that. You would just hope that Redden and Sexton would play an awful lot better next week. I can't quite understand why Jack Conan was on the bench, given he's a specialist number eight. And Reese Rudd can play across the back row and has done a test level and has more experience at these big games. You'd imagine he'd come back in. Um, the folly of not picking Marty Moore now, I think the Leinster and Ireland maybe as well are going to have to start realising this guy can scrummage. <laughs> yeah. And without him, the Leinster and Irish scrums can sometimes struggle. And certainly what happened to the Leinster scrum at the weekend was... Um, that can't be repeated or they're goosed. So I, I thought Moore and Ruddock will come into the reckoning as well. And if O'Brien comes back in, that would be a huge help. But if he's missing, they have a lot of high number of injuries to go with this World Cup hangover, which isn't helpful. I, I do want to move on to Munster very shortly, yeah. but we did maybe gloss over Leo Cullen there. So I don't know how concerned you are about this. This is a coach who is an absolute legendary player with the club. I think everybody at the time he was appointed wishes him well, but in the back of people's minds are this guy hasn't got the experience. He's only been uh, he's, he's learning on the job. No matter what way you mix this, he's he's learning on the job. And then somewhere then in the back of your head, do you give a, a season's leeway? Do you do you allow the Leinster fans and media and everybody kind of step back and accept the fact that there's no possible way he can know everything he needs to know, and therefore. Do you accept? Well, certainly, I think the European Cup is is gone, um, and then just slowly, maybe look at improvement as season goes on, and accept that our Leinster aren't going to be at their best. Yeah, well, I think if they lose next weekend, that that's almost going to be the state of play. And you made a good point there. You touched on it. The, within moments of the full time whistle, both in the PA in the ground and within minutes on the radio. Leinster organisation were trying to flog tickets for Leinster to be too long. This is a your bit chance. of a hard They really should have left that. There was also the, 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 the PA that, also that yeah, the PA yeah. also called for a round of applause for Leinster, which didn't get a massive reaction. I must say, Jerry. No, no. So that's going to be a hard sell now for their big Christmas. So it's big business. This has huge repercussions financially for the organisation, the organisation as a whole. You, you know. Do you have the luxury of affording a year's leeway to a new coach? Well, in effect, that's what's going to happen. You're right. We've said all along that Leo Cullen was going to be a better coach in a couple of years' time than he was going to be starting out. He's learning on the hoof. Michael Shecker at least came with some experience from Randwick. He had been a coach, a head coach. But even he was an infinitely better coach after three, four, five years with Leinster than he was at the start. And during the course of this World Cup, I did an interview with him and he, was, he readily accepted that he owed Leinster a huge amount because they helped make him the coach he is. And, you know, by, at some point in time, Leinster are going to help Leo Cullen to become a very good coach as well. But inevitably, he's going to learn on the job and he's going to get better um, as, as time progresses. Munster are away to Stade Francais uh, next weekend, which is obviously going to be a, a surreal, maybe, occasion to be involved in. I saw Anthony yeah. Foley saying uh, something along the lines of, look, there's going to be a press conference and obviously there'll be a lot of questions about everything that happened last weekend and, and that. But other than that, I won't be talking, that won't be part of our build-up, which I suppose from a purely professional mm. rugby point of view, that does that have to be the case that you you don't think too much about that side of it? Yeah, it's just, you know, you, know, you almost... You almost feel shallow just talking about rugby at the moment, yeah. don't you? After you see what happens, what happens the weekend, or you guys will be you're in the, you're in the same game as me. We talk about sports; that's our job, that's our livelihood, and it does seem almost um, facile talking about it, and it seems ir- totally irrelevant. That and far more important that games were cancelled, and Bruce Craig coming out today and demanding the points be shared seems, you know, because Bath the too long game was cancelled seems 
wholly and utterly inappropriate and um, yeah that's the bath owner for people who aren't oh, sorry the bath owner uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Bru- not everybody would know who Bruce Craig Bru- is Bruce Craig thing. yeah who's Although, essentially saying look the Toulon match he's having a he's, he's having a big pop at the fixture congestion as it is and saying well we're not going to be able to play this game against Toulon which was cancelled midweek so which is a terrible state of affairs so points should be shared you think this is opportunistic? It's just astonishingly opportunistic. It's an incredible time to bring up something like this. Something so inconsequential. Tick, uh, fixture congestion, you know, comes up fixture every season. congestion. To talk this about weekend. that in the wake of, of the game being cancelled. just astonishing. Go it's look exactly. at the TV, Bruce. Mm. Yeah. Get back with the real world. Have a cup of coffee or something and just get back with the real world. Look what's going on. It's just, you can't ignore the fact that Munster are going to Paris this weekend and it's one of our favourite cities in the world and we feel this huge empathy with them as a city, as a capital and they're such a part of the rugby firmament as well and they're such a part of this tournament and um, it casts a huge shadow over this. It's just a sports fixture. Um, but yeah, I suppose to get back to your question, that's what Anthony Foley has to do. He addresses it tomorrow at a press conference in Castle Troy and then he moves on and they... They press ahead with what is ultimately a rugby match. They did beat, uh, put the four tries on yep. Treviso without necessarily playing well. Mm-hmm. Not a huge amount of fluency, but you, you take that in your opening game? Well, I thought actually, entering that last 10 minutes, I thought this is now the first big pivotal moment of Munster's season. Anything less than a bonus point win at home to Treviso would have been a failure and would probably have been usurped by their main group rivals and put them a little bit in the back foot. One of the great chances of getting out of a group with the Italian team in it is that you take 10 points against the said Italian team. So to have only taken four points, match points from the home game would have been something of a failure. Um, So when they elected to go to the corner, I thought, right, old Munster, score fourth try here, get the bonus point, job done. And so new Munster did that. And I think that was the basic requirement on the day. And now they move on and start from, say, a bit like Bath, haven't shown up this season. Stadford say are really struggling domestically and lost away to Leicester at the weekend. I've no doubt, though, that this would be an um, altogether different occasion at home in Paris playing Munster. And uh, it's a very tough game for Munster. And you'd imagine that something like the real Stadford say will show up for one of the first few times this season. Um, but, yeah, it's a basic minimum requirement and they've got to get something out of this game on Sunday to stay alive in the pool, I'd imagine. What do you think? Yeah, I was quite impressed with Munster's second half in lots of ways because of the weather because of the pressure on them and because it's their first big game without Paul O'Connell. Mm. I know he doesn't play every game, but he's around, he's in mm-hmm. the franchise, he's about the place. Um, and it's like, I think you mentioned Old Munster, to get that late try for the four try bonus points. It's, it's, important, it's sort of a link to that pass, which they've done a few times. They haven't played brilliantly over the last few years, but there's just been a few reminders that there's still that spirit there. And I, I actually thought it was quite impressive to get the late try. And the way they did it showed patience and it showed mm. good handling yeah. and they improved as the game went on. I'm not saying they'll get out of their group, but I thought from what they can take from the weekend is quite positive. And I thought they got maybe too much criticism just because it was Treviso, who can occasionally be dogged. Yeah, I'd agree. I thought that, like I said, if they hadn't got out with that bonus point try, then all the criticism was justified. But they got the basic requirement of five points. And, you know, when it was in the balance, you know, I think the try came with just under five minutes to go. And you're looking at it, and it is a new monster team with CJ Stander as the captain. You know what I mean? This is new. And the, the, there's very few links now with the golden generation, if any at all, practically. So it's practically a new team. And Stander actually in that second half, I think, really typify yes. the open intensity yes. and yeah. he, focus. He, he, he well understands. You know, this is a man who's been regularly reduced to tears by Paul O'Connell. So much in awe is he of the man. And he would feel a huge sense of responsibility that came with wearing that captaincy armband and wanting to lead from the front. Um, and I think that, you know, it's as well... It's, it's not only a statement for them and for their home fans, but it's also a statement to all teams that come to Thomas Mark. This is still a fortress. 
if we want to try and we go to the corner, we're coming away with the try, no matter how long it takes. That's that is the bedrock around which Munster's success in Europe has been built. The, the, the successes at Tolman Park and the feeding time at the zoo kind of frenzy when they go to the corner and the pack says, right, we're going to score a try. And if they ever lose that, they're goosed. Just want to ask, if they ever lose Simon Zebo, are they also goosed? Because he's being linked to move with Pau. Apparently he's been speaking, according to Midi Olymp- Olympique today, he's been speaking to Simon Mannix, the former Munster backs coach, is uh, is involved there. Pau and they've had a meet-up. This could be the sort of usual contractual... Um, brinksmanship, but is how important is it that they keep somebody of Zebo's stature? Do you think? It's, I think it's vital. I mean, he and Conor Murray are the the two flag bearers for this organisation and the two selling points going forward. Realistically, um, they've got to stay. It would be hugely damaging, particularly on top of JJ Hanron leaving going mm. to Northampton. It still sickens me to see JJ Hanron coming off the bench and kicking a penalty for Northampton. It's just wrong. He should still be at Munster. I know Simon a little bit, and. Um, I have no idea what his thinking is on all of this, but I would say it could well be part of the negotiation bartering that goes on, a bit like Sean O'Brien and others all doing it now. But I would say the timing is not great from a Munster point of view, and he's perhaps a little bit more likely to leave now than he would have been two years ago when he also resisted overtures from Toulouse Mm. um, and stayed and signed a, a provincial contract and fought his way back into the Irish setup. But he's just been left out of the World Cup setup in a sense. He's just been left out in match day 23. Um, and I think that's going to dampen his mood and maybe figure that, yeah, now's a good time to go. I always thought that unless his Irish and Munster career went swimmingly well, there was a likelihood of him moving to France at some point. His father is, to all intents and purposes, French. Simon speaks French fluently. You know, there's a lot of French in him. It's why he plays the way he does. He plays with a certain French flair, what we used to call French yeah, flair. I to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, not very few French players seem to have, particularly in their coach with Philippe Saint-André. So I would think there would be a number of clubs in France that would be interested in him, and I would just think there's a greater danger of him going now. That's also, he seems like the sort of personality off the pitch that would enjoy a new environment, a new challenge. There's some guys who really love Dublin or Galway or Limerick or Cork, wherever it may be, and that's a huge factor. Not saying he doesn't love Cork, but oh, yeah. he strikes me as the sort of guy who would enjoy a new environment. Yeah, well. you're right, but he do, he is a very, very proud Monster boy as well. Like you know, he was going, he's been going to Monster games since he was a kid. It was his ambition to wear the red. He would feel a sense of responsibility to stay there as well. I'd still, on the law of averages, say if Monster make him a reasonably good financial offer, they are. If you do whatever, that what likelihood is he'll stay. I'd still say it's more likely he'll stay than he'll go. I'm just saying there's a greater chance of him going now than there would have been two years ago, unfortunately. Jerry, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain, isn't he? Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young... Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. The Straight Talking Savings Bank. You're certainly not buying that Leinster... The World Cup hangover line, Simon, that doesn't excuse... I think it was too bad for any one thing to explain what happened. Um, And it probably is a factor, actually, particularly when you think of the Dave Carney and Madigan examples as we were talking about there. But then it doesn't explain all the other things like the lack of 
just battle the the flatness um Johnny Sexton being quiet just inexplicable things and the errors were so bad I mean they were it's sometimes this happens teams they all one or two of them drop the ball and it ends up being a terrible team performance but the errors like Sexton putting it beyond um the the try line for his peno into the corner to try and get a line out close to the to the try line oh, yeah, the yeah. um Redden's passing Redden was one of, of the worst games people. I've ever seen on Redden play yeah um and there was a number of people like that who were near you know, career lows in terms of their performances. Anthony Foley, I mentioned there, uh, talking about Paris, uh, and I should probably stress that he was very, he spoke very well about how the tragedy has touched his squad, but just in terms of match preparation, they'll, they won't be talking about it amongst themselves, particularly from here on in. Bruce Craig, on the other hand, Simon, uh, mentioned by uh, Jerry there, just to give a bit more background on that one, the Bath owner, uh, not quite, not speaking with quite the same level of empathy with uh, everybody in France. Well, this is the thing, as we said there, to bring up, I mean, this is something that gets talked about in every sport all the time, fixture congestion. It's so inconsequential. It eventually gets figured out. You know, the players play too many games. Big deal. We've been talking about this for 10 years since, you know, the game got cluttered with European rugby and, and all the other bits and aspects to it, summer tours, etc. But, you know, it'll get figured out. Bujalal on the other end of things with Toulon is saying, yeah, absolutely, we can't play this on a Wednesday. It's, you know, be bad for the players. Maybe we could play it during the Six Nations. And then his other solution to that was Toulon wouldn't allow any of their French players play for France and Bath wouldn't allow any of their English players play for England. Uh, Toulon, I think, have two guys who might get picked for France. Um, Bath have six or seven. They're actually the core of the English team at the moment. So that's another nonsense suggestion. And then Bruce Craig's, what is it, a solution you know, he's come up with some mathematical formula from the French amateur leagues about your current position and how many points you've already accumulated and what you would get for a fixture that doesn't get played. And I think he suggested Bath would get two points from this Toulon game if it never gets played. And considering it's Toulon, they're playing three, they've won the competition the last three years in a row. You know, if it was Treviso and they suggest two points, that might be some sort of a solution. <laughs> but it's it's absolutely laughable <laughs> to suggest you might get two points. Most, I mean, yeah, most, most sides would accept an outcome of a draw, which is what this would be, uh, two points in the bag away to Toulon. Yeah, to the, well, yeah, the lack of empathy. I mean, this is the easiest answer, uh, answer to a question possible it's now is not the time let's talk about this in like a month's time and we'll figure it out well this that he said you know you know in light of what's happened in paris this isn't so serious but i'm going to carry on and talk about it for ages and then use the word disaster in relation to the fixture congestion he actually used the word disaster later in that really? sentence yeah all right the irish times second captain's football podcast is out now that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well you can laugh i was the world cup I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them up with what you're doing down here, you surely man. Well, uh, we were talking about uh, the things that happened over the weekend um, in Bosnia and also in Paris. So we've got Simon Cooper on from Paris. Um, He was at the game between France and Germany on. Friday night, and he's talking to us about what's been happening over the weekend there. And we're also talking to Miguel, who was in Zenitsa for uh, Ireland against Bosnia, the second leg of that game, of course, being tonight. The Cork Ladies footballers have won 10 All-Ireland titles in the last 11 years, and Mary White has told the inside story of the Cork Lady footballers in her book called Relentless 
which is out now. Mary joins us in studio. Mary, how are you? I'm good, I'm great. I know a common theme in sports books, I think, is to start with the finest hour or the subject's finest hour. You know, you might get uh, Michael Carruth winning a gold medal in 1992 or uh, Bobby Moore winning the World Cup final in 1996. You start this book with the Cork team winning the RTE Team of the Year award. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering why, why was that so important to them? Um, I think it was probably just um, because it was a public vote and it was just after 10, 11 years of them actually achieving so much and being nominated so many times and not actually getting the recognition. I think that was just a massive moment in terms of them, people realising, hang on a second, these girls have been, you know, doing this year in, year out. Um, they're up in the benchmark. There's people nipping at their heels, yet here they are. And the fact as well that they beat the Irish rugby men's team by 11%. Is, is, is that why you wanted to write the book, effectively? The, the idea that... Um, and, you, and you see it with, with, uh, with uh, ladies' football teams all around the, the country, that they have a hardcore support whereby it's parents and brothers and sisters attending the game and there is a community there that in ways is kind of bigger than you'd find with the county senior men's team because basically everyone in the county is involved there. So the parents very much would be, they'd be a lot more distant to the setup than parents of of uh, of women's football uh, footballers would be just because there's maybe 200 or 250 people on this journey with this team and beyond that, no one, no one really knows anything about about this team other than just the the baseline figure of ten All Irelands in eleven years. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, but I suppose as well that um, this might, I hope, would be a watershed moment in that it is the first sports book that I'm aware of that you know features a specific Irish women's sports team. You know, um, so from that regard, I would think that it would be a watershed moment. But I, I do think things are changing in terms of the audience that people are getting. And the purpose, one of the points um, for writing the book was um, to actually change that and change people's perceptions and not just make it a story about they won this match, they won that match, but actually the human interest stories, the parents, the partners, um, you know, people close to them passing away, what it meant to them, because that happens with every team and every GA team and every sport and every coach across the country. But to actually get that insight that you probably wouldn't get in a men's team, um, I think the book kind of relates to that as well. What's your own connection to the team? You seem pretty close to them. Um, I attempted to be a footballer, an intercounty <laughs> football in the past. Um, so I would have been playing with the Cork Junior team at the time when Eamon was getting involved. So, um, And as well as that, I would have been PRO for the Cork County Board at the same time because I wanted to give the girls publicity, even though they were getting hammered week in and week out with the likes of uh, Kerry and, and Waterford at the time. Um, I suppose along the way, you have to kind of find a balance as, OK, these are your friends that you've played with as well. But, you know, there's a fine line as well where you have to kind of professionally, you know, if they play bad, they play bad. And this is and they used to play badly quite a lot. As you mentioned before, 2004, and this is the thing that always fascinates me about this team is that whatever Kilkenny say, winning a few in a row and hurling or other great teams, be they men's or women's teams, this is a side that didn't have a tradition of success. And yet suddenly it turns around into this, the most dominant team in Irish sport, 10 All-Irelands in 11 years. I hadn't won a Munster, I think, until 2004. Yeah, in 30 years. So what did, um, what happened exactly? I suppose that's partly the point of the book, but what happened in that time? Uh, And people aren't really aware of that. I mean, as well, there was massive rivalry in the dressing rooms. Like Juliet Juliet Murphy recounts uh, a story whereby one of her Dillamore teammates told her, 
when you go into the county dressing room, don't talk to anybody else from any other club. That's just the way it was. That's pretty healthy. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. They laugh about it now because when you think about how far they've actually come. Yeah. But people wouldn't be um, familiar with those rivalries. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just, I suppose, people probably put down the change down to Eamon Ryan. Of course, you know, he's just, he's he's just a master in what he does uh, you know in managing people and bringing the best out of people and it's funny because he doesn't use any tactics which many people think but he doesn't um, and another reason to write the book however was that it wasn't just Eamon there was a, a lady called Mary Collins who was the first manager there and she was the one who actually put these players together for Eamon to mould and she was the one that broke down uh, club rivalries as well mm. and her story is a massive part of this as well and I suppose they just worked brilliantly together um, and they created a massive culture of winning in Cork. And now there's a blueprint for Cork ladies football and for going forward. And I think other teams and even other GA teams, male teams in the country, are now actually looking in and kind of going, hang on a second now. You know, same personnel, bar the management team, what changed? You know, is there something we can learn from this and going forward? Yeah, one of the key themes of the book as well is this struggle for them to be respected. Respected, uh, I think, by the people of Cork, by their, your regular sports fans in Cork, but also um, the, the the level of respect shown by female sports organisations towards them as well, because, uh, you know, maybe it, it crossed their paths in passing when it happened, but this idea that, that you're asking Rena Buckley and Breach Corkery to play Camogie Championship Games in July or August and then to play Ladies Gaelic Football Championship games on the same day, it it strikes me as just completely bizarre that that situation could be allowed to happen. And it's happened in multiple occasions, as you outline in the book, that they're doing these high-speed car chases, effectively, from a camogie game to a, a Ladies Gaelic Football game, which just strikes me as bizarre. Yeah, and, and I suppose this year was the first year that actually Breach Corkery in 11 years public has spoke about you know that I mean they were expected to play uh, uh, an Ireland Camogie senior qualifier in Parky Ring at two o'clock on a Saturday. Jump in a car after playing the full match, drive to forty minutes to Mallow and line out in a Munster Senior Championship final against Kerry at six o'clock. Um, now I've always kind of played devil's advocate in the sense that if I think I, I think personally, if you decide to play two sports then you need to kind of make a decision because there's a lot of female athletes out there who play international basketball, might play Super League basketball, turn around and line out for their National League um, football teams. or you know. But I think in this instance, the fact that it's two sister organisations um, and personally I feel as well maybe the communication has been been the best between the both associations and when you look at what those two players have actually done for those each of those sporting organizations they're going up and down the country to medal presentations and everything else and yeah that i mean i think that's very much uh, a point worth raising though that they're two completely separate organizations well as separate as uh, yeah as yeah. can be in a situation like that where they're both using ga facilities and they're they have a similar pool of players and yet they can't get together to make sure that as you say, the two basically the two flag bearers for women's Gaelic game sport in the country uh, are being put constantly in this invidious uh, position. It's it just, it's 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 not something that that, and it, the, the the strange thing as well is that it's not something that they ever complain about. Like Breeze has spoken about it once, uh, and you know, having lost that monster final to Kerry, they immediately thought, okay, well, we we can't ever raise this again. Surely it's. Well, you know, that's Breach is obviously her own decision. But if if there was more noise made about it, do you think would they still be put in, in that position? 
Um, I would hope that after this year that would change. I mean, this year they had like four instance, instances, I think, of, you know, having to double up. Um, I think maybe the coin toss instance probably changed things for the Camogie Association. And I think they're really trying to push maybe talks and, and that. Um, I think a lot of change probably has to come from the Ladies Football Association. That's my personal view as well. Um, a lot of people think it might be a power struggle between both codes. At the top, I don't know, but I do think um, things definitely need to change um, because it's they're simple solutions. You know, it's a case of Munster Council's not talking to the national, national not talking to counties, and it's just a bit ludicrous at this stage. And this has been going on eleven years. It's just one point this year. Breach raised it, and it affected their game. They lost that Munster final, but I suppose it drove them on to win their their tenth this year. Then, well, that's just so impressive about them actually being able to. Um Go and, go and not just compete, but dominate their sports despite barriers being placed in their way, I think, rather than what you would think would happen would be barriers taken down a little bit. But when you write a book like this, Mary, people might start looking at it and going, well, does this mean this is the end of an era for this great Cork team? Is there any oh. chance that it is? <laughs> um, to be honest, I would think that maybe one or two players, you know, will decide to move on. You know, they're at a point in their lives where, you know, might, they might want to have kids and that. I'm not sure, but it's the same story every year. Um, will Eamon come back and Eamon's waiting for the girls and the girls are waiting for Eamon. They'll sit down and decide. Um, we thought that after the comeback, the incredible comeback last year against Dublin, yeah. 10 points down, 16 minutes to go. God, you couldn't go out any better than that. But lo and behold, they came back. So you just don't know. And there's such a great underage setup as well. Um, great work being done by the likes of Charlie McLaughlin down in Cork as well for years. Um, that that'll that'll probably follow through as well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, in, in a weird kind of way, we've we've already seen with the Kilkenny hurlers that you can lose as many players as you like, but uh, the cultural architecture, as you say is there, which means that, uh, you know, you can hope and pray. And I'm sure that there are many counties out there who are, you know, kind of waiting for Cork to go into decline a small bit. And it's weird, like, the, you look at all the games, they haven't won all of these yeah. Ireland finals by, like, vast, huge margins. Uh, it, so the, the, the idea that they were, that they've gone down from a peak that they had, that's not actually the case. And I suppose the, the carrot is there now that having done two five in a row's, that uh, you you try and go for 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 six next year. I I, I for one wouldn't be counting on them uh, walking away anyway. All right. Well, yeah. the book is called Relentless: The Inside Story of the Cork Ladies Footballers. Mary White, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks a million. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. Got to talk about the big shock of the sporting weekend before we go, Ken. And that was the undoubted star of the UFC, certainly the undoubted female star of the UFC, Ronda Rousey, being surprisingly beaten in Melbourne. Yeah, and being, I mean, really, really beaten. Uh, as Donald Trump said, glad to see that Ronda Rousey lost her championship fight. Uh, she was soundly beaten. Not a nice person. So... 
Donald Trump, not a fan. Any idea what his beef is with Ronda Rousey? Well, she said, uh, uh, I would like a yeah, reality TV star running the country. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> his uh, smack talk on Twitter is just the worst, isn't it? Yeah, it's he's it's, it's really terrible. bad. Like he just there's there's no wit to it whatsoever. There's not one thing that he's ever said on Twitter is anything other than "You sir are a clown." <laughs> That's pretty much true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a big upset. But what you know, how big an upset was it really? I mean, it's just the, it's maybe just a reflection of uh, how hype can build someone into. Something that well, I heard, the, really... I heard the UFC promo, Ken. And yeah. I mean, I, initially I just thought of Ronda Rousey as a UFC fighter. Yeah. But according to the promo, I will never see a human being like this possibly yeah. ever again. <laughs> yeah. This bronze medalist in judo at the Olympics is the, the greatest athlete in human history. You know, that was, it's not just once in a lifetime, it's once in history was, <laughs> was uh, the promo that they were playing at the event in Dublin. Anyway, that's what it said. Yeah. I think it was a somewhat overexcited Joe Rogan. Uh, who was giving voice to that sentiment? Um, but yeah, it was it was not even a close fight. It was a uh, she just kept running into a series of increasingly <laughs> increasingly devastating punches until eventually was knocked clean out. So it's going to be something of a readjustment now. Uh, but I suppose it just goes to show, you know, these unexpected things can happen. You know, you kind of got to be on your game. That's just about it for this podcast. But before you disengage your brain, if you check your phone there, you'll see there are still a few seconds left. Just check it there. Yep, yep, you see? That's because I still have to remind you to have a look at secondcaptains.com, where the homepage is dominated by the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1. Lots of info there about what's in the book, which will be published later this week. You can pre-order on the website. So secondcaptains.com for all of that. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen, and Thanks, thank you, Ken. Ken. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, Owen. Thanks for listening, and now we're finished. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 